Hey, how much money do you have at Jizmopper makes per hour? Hello? Hello? It's all around us. So welcome back, everybody. This is a uh, we're going to do a ramble cast tonight. And this is the first ramble cast that I have done this year. I think it's been the first ramble cast I've done since uh, this is the first ramble cast of 2020. All the shows I've done thus far since I've rebooted everything have been interviews or roundtables. But I got Gary back. Gary Morgan from Bizarro Aficionado. Good to hear from What's you. Again, my friend. What's up? Good to see you, sir. Uh, you are going on season two of your show now. I kind of wish I had done that when I rebooted this, where I just, instead of doing episodes, like an episode a quarter, where I would just do like season one, season two, season three, but it seemed kind of redundant at this point. I don't know. Hey, so. you can do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, you know. I know. Yeah, I know, but it's like. You might as well oh, wait to like a landmark number again, you know, wait to like 325 or 350 and then be like, all right, from here on out. We'll do seasons, but I don't know. My we'll seasons see. are short we'll too. See. Well, they were. Well, they might still be. We're almost at the end it's, again. It's weird because me and you both kind of un- unrelated decided that we didn't want to do stupid oh, shows anymore. No. Now I still do stupid shows on other podcasts, but like a lot of the dumb shows that I used to do here, the more humorally oriented ones, like the fast food fops and stuff. Yeah. Like when I said I'm not going to do those anymore, and I wanted to go into more serious direction with my content, a lot of my buddies were like, "Hey, hey, you know, can can we do that show now?" So I still I still have a place to go to do those. See, that's great. Since I've decided to take the show more seriously with the content, not so much how I handle the show. I still try to do humor. Um, I fail. (laughs) No, you don't. Since I've tried to do that, it's it's become – it's weird. It's become more work since oh, yeah. I decided to start taking it seriously. It's, it's, it's like it's more work to put one of these shows together now. So Yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to set the bar too high. In fact, I, I like it right at about bang your head, far head level. It's about there. Yeah. I, I like what I'm doing. I really do. I like I like the direction that I'm going in with it, but now it's like I'm, I'm putting more effort into – like to, to finding different guests and stuff like that. Whereas before sure. it's kind of like, yeah, let's just go with the flow. And then I'm also doing another show. I'm putting, I'm putting together another podcast. I talked about this in a few other shows, but it's the first time I've talked about it here. I'm doing another podcast pretty soon called old nerds drinking. It's not my show. It's my buddy John's and how it all came about is me and my buddies would, we would all sit. I have a fire at my house like once a week or whatever, where we all like do the social distance thing. But this is how we're, we're social. You know, we all sit around this fire and it all came about because we would do our, 
sit around and get buzzed or drunk, and we would start talking about all this interesting stuff, and eventually it was like, we need to record this shit. We need to record it around the fire. Well, it's not really going to, it won't really work like that, plus we're coming to the end of the season, you know, it, right. it's strange with COVID, like I've done more... I've done more motorcycle riding this year and backyard fires than I've ever done in my life. And it's become kind of a therapeutic, uh, cathartic thing for me. So when my buddies come over, That's we'll great. sit and talk about all this stuff. And my friend was like, I think I want to do this as a podcast. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. I don't <laughs> think you understand what you're doing with this. And, you know, and, and he, it's going to be his show and I'm going to be there most of the time. But, um, you know, we've already got things set up for it. We got the love it. set up, and we're going to have – I'm going to bug my friend uh, Red Pill Junkie to do some artwork for it. And, I didn't uh, know he did artwork, too. Oh, Red Pill does great artwork. He does a lot He's of – He's a fascinating guy. Yeah, he's done the artwork for Greg's books and stuff. He does. A, he did the artwork for uh, – he did some artwork for uh, Wheel Nerds for Chuck nice. over there. Yeah. So I'm going to have – I've already bugged him. He's going to do the artwork for us. I've got a rough idea of how I want it to look. And John was like, here, take this and do this with it. And pretty much I serve as the consultant. But it's yeah. it's flowing really nicely. But I was like, this is your show. You know, whatever whatever happens here is your ballgame. So we're putting that together, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And um, it's weird because, like, since I've stepped back, the more I step back, the more it's like people are like, hey, man, will you come on my show? I'd like to have you on my show. And, and lately, you know, <laughs> people have been bugging Signs, me. man. It's it's Signs. strange. Like, I don't – in full yeah. disclosure, like, everybody knows that I really don't like being on other podcasts because I don't like being under the microscope. But it's a karma thing. You know, I have to yeah. – you have to put I out do. into the universe – I insist you come on mine every time I ask, yes. Well, yeah, I do come on your show. <laughs> you do, yes, you I do. do. But you don't ask anymore, so. <laughs> That's because I've been barely putting out exactly. enough. Exactly. I'm getting back on the track again. Like, I just did a show this last weekend. Jim, Jim, um, James Nettles, who's going to be coming on in the next show, has a thing called uh, Continual. And I was on a roundtable discussion on there, and there's a couple other shows that want me to come on. And, you know, I, I'm going to do it, but I'm really, really uncomfortable about being in another situation, so. So, anyways, It'll be fine. we're going to do a ramble cast. I'm sitting here drinking Diet A&W root beer, and the last of this bourbon that I got up in the mountains when I was up in Utah, my friend took me to a... Mountain bourbon. That sounds fantastic. Is, yeah, my friend took me to a distillery up in Utah, and there's not much of it left. Um, I have been imbibing a little bit too much in the alcohol lately, so I've been making a concerted effort to really cut back on the alcohol. Not so much on the edibles, but on the alcohol, yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, this was not a drinking year for me. I... Um, it's become, I don't think I even have bought alcohol yet this year. That's yeah, weird. I've, I've been, I've, I've, I really have been making a big concerted effort to cut back. I, a couple of weeks ago, I got really, 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 really drunk. <laughs> oh, really man. drunk. Like, That's hard to really come drunk. back from at our age. Yeah, it was. Like I was like the next day, the whole day, I was wiped out. I'm like, I'm going to die, and my wife's going, Are you okay? You know what, what's going on here? What, what's what's the deal? And I'm like, I'm going to die. Do you want to go and get some yard sales? This is the age of COVID. Everybody is going to die. Yeah, let me put my. Hand on. <laughs> so. <laughs> nope, I've scheduled die right yeah. here today. Well, I had to get on the calendar. So, anyways, um, that's enough babble for me, I guess. You can tell it's been. A <laughs> I've talked to anybody like about podcasting stuff in a while. Right. Um, you've brought some articles. I've brought some articles. Let's get this started with an article that you brought to the show, which is man claims Dr. J. Allen Hynek was told to discredit his 1963 UFO sighting. Hynek, oh man, I, I'm a big fan of Hynek. I, a, I like the way the I guy Preston looked in his whole goatee and his hat thing. I really dug that. Yeah. Um, I really did not like what the History Channel Little finger. Did. 
Yeah, it's the whole History Channel thing that he did. I wasn't cool about that, but yeah, you know, no, cool. I tried. Yeah, so did I. But it was I tried. I it was typical History Channel glorification of something that like the stories were weird enough. They didn't need to do what they did with them, you know, the way that they told yeah. them. So I fell out after the first season. Anyways, I only watched that for. Uh... What was her name? Cassia Kennan or whatever, the girl from yes. Lost Girl. Yeah, she had the hotness. There was nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. Beautiful girl. I am a fan of the Famali form. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Singular Fortian, take it away. Yeah. So, man claims that Dr. J. Allen Hynek was told to discredit his 1963 UFO sighting. So, earlier in the month, the Singular Fortian Society received information from this 79 year old. Uh, Gerald Therese, regarding an experience he had with a weird-winged creature in Illinois during the winter of 57. So in the course of discussing the, the experience, Therese also mentioned that he'd had an encounter at a U.S. Army station at a Nike Hercules missile site in Northfield, Illinois, in 1963. He said, I was on guard duty at the time at our radar station, he said. It was after midnight when I witnessed a UFO in the sky southeast of my location. Maybe a mile away, around 1,000 feet above the terrain, I watched it for a few minutes before I made a phone call to our command offices in, Ar- in yeah, Arlington, Illinois, to report what I was observing. I was contacted a few days later by Dr. J. Allen Hynek. This report is documented in Project Blue Book. Dr. Hynek has told me that he was informed to tell me that I saw was what I saw was just a private airplane towing an advertising sign. I doubt they would be flying at that time of night. Now there's no way a plane could ever make the moves that I witnessed, and the end of the encounter of this UFO just it just shot up into space as fast as a bullet. So Therese described the UFO as saucer shaped, with rotating lights that encircled the craft, illuminating what looked like windows. The size was difficult to know exactly, but he said it was about uh, 100 feet in diameter. The craft's color, he added, was indiscernible because it was nighttime. So a review of the Project Blue Book case files actually confirmed the date of Teresa's sighting as May 11th, 1963, and the official evaluation as aircraft. Um, if you go into the article in the show notes, you, they got some things you can look at here in an actual uh, excerpt from the case listing. Yeah, I probably so won't put this in the show notes, but you can go to the Singular Fortian. <laughs> Tobias so, is a hell of a guy. He's been on the show, and I love his site, and I'm going to have him back on again. But go ahead. yeah, go ahead. Yes. I have no idea what you just said. But in correspondence <laughs> with the Singular Fortian Society, Therese explained that the impression he got was that Dr. Hynek was being pressured in the unfairly discrediting his sighting. A few days after his sighting, Therese said someone claiming to be Dr. J. Allen Hynek called him on the phone. Well, it was, I think, days later. Let's not forget 57 years have passed, and it was late at night, he said. I was asleep and the phone woke me. The man on the other end introduced himself as Dr. J. Allen Hynek and went on to give me his message that he said was relayed to him. He went on to say that he was told to tell me what eyewitness was a small private airplane that was flying over the area, and the plane was towing a sign behind it at around the time of my sighting. He concluded with these words, This is what I was told to tell you. 
I went on to say that there was no airplane that could maneuver the way this air this UFO was doing. Up, down, side to side, and coming to a complete stop. There were lights that completely encircled the craft and, and were floating, displaying what looked like windows. And the most shocking part of the whole episode was when it departed and the craft looked like it just shot up out of a cannon. They wanted to tell us that again, just in case. <laughs> I mean to tell you, I was a radar operator at Nike Hercules missile site, and I've witnessed the missile fringes, or uh, missile firings. I'm sorry, I can't read. And this UFO took off into space faster than the missiles I've seen being launched. I'm sorry this was all I was able to say to you. Good night. And that was all I can relect. So the missile site at which Therese was stationed, which was active from 55 to 74, is just south of Chicago. Braidwood, where Therese had his winged creature sighting, is approximately 70 miles southwest of the site. Dr. Hynek was a scientist and UFO investigator who was initially skeptical of the phenomenon. When he signed on as a scientific consultant to the United States Air Force's Project Sign in 1948, but his opinion on the quality of evidence in favor of UFOs gradually shifted as he worked on projects like Sign and Blue Book. He quickly grew frustrated with how flippantly his fellow scientists treated UFOs. Ridicule is not part of the scientific method, and people should not be taught that it is, Dr. Hynek wrote in an article for the April 53 issue of the Journal of Optical Society of America. What? <laughs> yeah, that's I'm that just changed my view of things or something. <laughs> but anyway, Hynek became very disillusioned and eventually left and yeah. stuff like that. But yeah. I, I don't disbelieve this, I'm sure. They just wanted someone to go out there and be I, a government official to saying, oh, no, no. But I think there were some that were definitely nope, though, too. Well, he had said that he quit investigating this stuff because a lot of this stuff could be explained away, but it was the 10% that really kept him from. Sure. He said, you know, I have 100%, 90% of his stuff could be explained away, which I am also in that, that category that, yeah, a lot of this stuff can be explained away. But there's that 10%, as with all yeah. of the paranormal, that's like, huh. That can't be exactly. explained away in the way that we perceive things. So, like, Heineck is one of those people that, that got me into my way of thinking about all of this paranormal stuff. Oh, yeah. um, you know, but that's, that's you know, at the end of it, he was like, yeah, I can't, you know, there's there's this, there's things out there that we just, that, that, that defy logic that there's no explanation for. But for the most part, it seemed like that was what he was becoming. He was becoming this guy that was just sure. like, no, you saw this, you saw that. And, you know, it would, it would wear on you after a while, so. Oh, absolutely. So we're going to go to the next one, which is strangeago.com. And this is six terrifying things witnessed at the guillotine. I'll start it all off and I'll read number one, but I'm going to read the preface of it first. Of course, sure. as always with this stuff, we have not pre-read any of this shit. <laughs> it's like, this looks cool. Maybe we should cover this on the show. Okay, it's not incredibly long and we won't Wait. lose people. So, yeah, let's go. Are we supposed to do prep? Yeah, it's, that, well, that's a thing. Prep is, <laughs> the only time I ever do prep is when I'm interviewing a guest. Whenever I'm doing a show right, like this, it's too. like, well, this article looks cool. What's the source of it? All right, that looks pretty interesting you know so yeah. you know if it's questionable like unless it's something that's blatantly fake news and if, if we cover it then it's like all right this is fake news but anyways right. six terrifying things witnessed at the guillotine dr joseph ignis dr joseph ignis guillotine waged a verbal war against the barbaric use of axes and swords to execute criminals we had a very little ease to do with the actual making of the guillotine 
Actual, did I read that? Little else to do with the actual making of the guillotine. Sorry, folks, my eyes are beginning to go bad. The original guillotine called the Louison, 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 yeah, L-O-U-I-S-O-N, was built. Whenever I can't pronounce something French, I just put one of those in it. Yeah, 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 you can do that. That must be Louison, Louison, sure, yeah, God, it's sexy, was built by a German harpsichord maker, Tobias Schmidt, that's the second time we've run across that name, Tobias, under the direction. Uh, My lifeline isn't ending until I'm reincarnated into a... uh, what was he? A harpsichord maker named Tobias Schmidt. <laughs> that is my life goal now. So you are actually reading an article for something that you built. Actually, that, right. in that the theoretical great? world of loopiness, uh, France's right. National Assembly voted to use the guillotine on March 25th, 1792. Yeah, 1792. A month later, it was in use. Wow, that was quick. That's something that doesn't happen nowadays. From that time up until 1977, the National Razor drew crowds from across Europe to witness the execution of murderers, rapists, anarchists, poet- and politicians. What should that. be added into that bankers and lawyers the bank yeah bankers right. and lawyers again into that uh so i'll do number one and then after that we'll just bounce back and forth biting heads what happens to a head after they have lopped off by the blade of the guillotine normally the heads fall into a basket lined with sawdust but according to the report published in 1870 some depict the decapitated heads have gone the extra mile to freak out the living that would be me <laughs> <laughs> might as well put on the show 1854 during execution in amains amains le monde <laughs> It means France. Uh, a woman's head bit the lip uh, of the, the catch basket and refused to let go. Oh, my God. So the head dropped into the basket. It bit onto the lip of the basket. It wouldn't let go. <laughs> the executioner found her jaw muscle had tightened, and by the time he got to the woman's jaw to release the basket, she had bitten a hole through the woven willow container. Uh, during a different execution in the same city, a young man's head totally missed the basket and rolled onto the grass. When the executioner went to pick the head, he discovered it was quick, quite stuck quite stuck on the ground. In further investigation, it was found that the decapitated head's jaw had fastened onto a clump of grass and refused to let go. His head was pulled with the dirt and the grass still in the mouth. Ah, okay. What's in the box? (laughs) You're up next. All right, tattoos of premonition. The tattoos we place on our bodies have a lot to say about who we think we are. Some tattoos are humorous, some are cute, and some body markings tell a dark tale about one's future. Antoine Diebler, France's most notable executioner, witnessed a number of ominous tattoos on his subjects. In the article about Diebler, published in 1932, it was said that as Diebler opened the shirts of many criminals, he saw that guillotines were often tattooed on the men's chests. The guillotine was usually inked in blue and given a red blade. On a few occasions, criminals even had the face of Diebler himself tattooed beside the mark of the guillotine proving that the men were fully aware that their actions would eventually take them to meet the blade. Guillotine phrases were also popular among the criminal class. Some had the phrase, Promise to Diebler, tattooed on their collarbone. Another common phrase was, Betrothed to the Widow. Finally, there was the last step which referenced the last step one took to reach the platform of the guillotine. The fact that you say guillotine properly and I say it as guillotine bothers me. But hey, (laughs) (laughs) because I am saying it wrong. 
Tw- uh, it's all right. 20 seconds next. One of the main next. reasons why gu- the guillotine was popular guillotine. was a popular form of execution was because it was quick. As soon as a person stepped onto the platform, he would be whisked into the guillotine and the blade would fly down. A few seconds later, the guillotine would be ready for the next victim. Whoopsh, whoopsh. Uh, one remarkable description of the swiftness of the guillotine, 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 whatever the hell I'm supposed to be calling it, was published in 1922. Henri Desire Landru, the bluebeard of Gambayas, was accused of murdering 10 women and a teenage boy and went to the guillotine. I can't say it right now because now you've got that mental block in my head. A little after midnight on February 25th, uh, men went to work hammering the Timbers of Justice. As they get, That sounds like a great name for an old superhero. It, it does. We are the Timbers of Justice. justice. As the guillotine. Elm man. Yeah. Wood man. Oak man. <laughs> and I am Pistol. Uh, as the guillotine was erected, crowd started to build up outside the Vercelli's jail. Vercelli's? Versailles. Versailles. Yeah, see? English! Motherfucker, do you speak it? Everyone oh, wanted French. to see Landry pay for his crime. Shut up. <laughs> it's all French to me. Everything was ready and in place by 6 a.m. The jail doors opened up and the prosecutor warden and two of Landrew's lawyers stepped out. A few minutes later, Landrew was brought out. His long beard had been trimmed and his head was shaved. After stepping out of the door, Landrew... And it says, in quotes, God, I feel like this is a WWF wrestling or WWE or whatever the hell it's called now, wrestling thing. You know, like, motions going off and they're playing the guy's music as he walks out and goes, he goes <laughs> chopped off. Right. Walked exactly five steps before the executioner assistant caught him around the waist and leveled him on the table, which was immediately upended. The heavy weighted knife slid down and the whole affair was over in less than 20 seconds. All right, you're up. You see that I have to comment on that because that that's so much different than we're fed in movies. You know, it's always this long, drawn yeah. out process. Yeah. They just kind of grab them, threw them in there, and shoot next. It's crazy. Exactly. I kind of wanted Singing, to be the other way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Singing and cheers for many people who went to the public executions. It was a social affair. People would begin gathering around the execution site as the guillotine was being put into place. There was often singing, cheers, and plenty of booze to go around. Boo! This was a medieval During- rave. <laughs> Boo! Not a princess! During the 1888 execution of accused murderer Prado. Prado. Prado? My name is Prado. I don't know why I just picture him as a hockey Spaniard. I don't know. <laughs> it was now I'm seeing the guy from Highlander. <laughs> I, right, I am Sean Connery. <laughs> right. There can be an only immense, one. An immense crowd collected outside last night and remained until Rado had been executed. The Ramble spent the time in singing comic songs and amusing themselves in their boisterous ways, awaiting Rado. <laughs> it's be a little guitar in the back going ding every time Prado yeah. gets said. It's like I am Sancho. <laughs> that is perfect. See si El Guado. Uh, price for killing a parent. When it was announced that the public execution of Dushimin, Dushman, 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 a man accused of killing his mother, was taking place at 4:30 p.m. in Paris, 1909. Crowds began to fill the streets in preparation for the celebration of death. Yay! However, Yay. unlike other executions, those who were accused of murdering a parent had to go through a slightly different ritual 
ritual of display before death. On one account, in parentheses, as the trembling wretched stepped out of the wagon, fellow following a priest who was holding a crucifix before him, which, hey, that'll, that'll save him, sure. It was seen that according to the law dealing with Par- what parasites? Sure, uh, he was barefooted oh, yeah. and his head covered with a transparent veiling, uh, while a cape of crude material only half concealed his naked naked chest. Oh, so hot! Dling. Before the onlookers had time to express <laughs> their wonderment, Prado. <laughs> 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 Wondered at his strange and dis- disconcerting garb, which gave one of the impression that the victim was a woman. The flowing veil fell from his head, the cape from the shoulders, and the victim was seized and thrown under the knife. So, if you were a person, every time you see Prado, there has to be that ding in the background. You need to find that sound drop and put it in here. So every so if you were a if you were a a parent killer, they would basically like put this veil over top of you that was in a transparent veil, and then they would drop it off of you right before they cut your head off. Anyways, number six, go ahead. It's like why the cape? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't- I need I need more. All right, readying the widow for a husband. One of the many names given to the guillotine was the Red Widow. After a criminal was beheaded and his head had fallen into the basket, his body was pushed into a longer basket beside him. He was then quickly loaded up onto a cart and rushed away to the burial grounds. Obviously, a large amount of blood would cover the scene. The executioner's assistants would rush to the blade with large sponges and buckets of water. They sopped up the blood, wrung out the sponges in the buckets, and watered down the scene. They called this making the widow's toilet for her next husband. How do you get the that job, and how much does it toilet. pay? Am I, would that make me like a flusher? <laughs> really? Bring the flushers! They say in Clerks, the jizz mopper job at the porn studios, at the porn houses. The porn houses. That was my first, second ever job. No, you did not. Cleaning an adult no. bookstore that has little... You're lying. Put the coins in, and you can see a little movie. It wasn't even no. like real girls in there. You did not do that. You're lying. Your ass off. No, not. I am not. You, you, you actually did. You were a porn. You were a porn booth cleanup guy. Well, they weren't making the porn in the booth. There was a guy no, you know, that would watch the porn the, in the booth. You still had to clean up the the uh, puddles. Well, I, well <laughs> I had to vacuum it, and oh. sometimes you know it was a little crusty oh. in there. Sure. Oh, a little crusty. Oh, yeah. crusty. Well, Rusty's a good you, you are you have lived an amazingly weird life. I'm so, it is so kind of, dumb. You have been an archaeologist, you have been to CBGBs, you have lived on the street, yeah. you have done yeah. the craziest shit, and now you have revealed that you were a jizz mopper in a porn a house. Crusty jizz mopper. Wow. Vacuum how, how, how did the interview I know we're fuck this story. We're gonna keep telling you on with this. <laughs> how did the interview for that job go? How did you even well, it was uh just walk this Go ahead. It was adult world and it was on 309 in Montgomeryville in Pennsylvania. How old were you? And uh, 18. Oh, my God. Okay. Continue. So, <laughs> it was a weird time. I was dating a stripper. So, you know. <laughs> of course. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> so I I guess it was in the one ads because I can't remember how else I would find jobs back then. So I assume it was in the wanted section. Remember newspapers? Yes. But I, I guess I went over there or called them, and they just said, come in, fill out an app. So I went, filled out an application, and he's like, when can you start? So 
So I don't think there was a lot of demand. At, at what point do they walk you to the um, booth of pleasure and say, here is a mop, here's a bucket, clean this? I mean, well, there was never a mop, but he, they did have those big yellow dish gloves I could wear. Oh, like, they didn't even mop the floor? Well, the floor's carpet. Oh, that's even more gross. It's, <laughs> it's so gross. Oh. I would have to vacuum it, and you'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. oh. Did you wear a hazmat suit during the <laughs> No. No. Do you have chlamydia, no. sir? I, I, every time I breathed, I got chlamydia there, I think. But, oh, my uh, God. I, <laughs> uh, luckily, they, I mean, the walls were all painted black, so oh. you noticed if there was oh. something on the wall, if you noticed it quick. Everybody listening right now is getting a visual of what you're talking about. <laughs> So they are now because I said that. All right, I'm going to finish this article off because yes. uh, it fits in perfectly with where we're going here. The cleanup <laughs> was done for two main reasons. One, because Gary was given the job and he needed it. The second, the first was for the sake of the spectators who were over time claimed to be sick of the bloodshed, although that never stopped them from coming to the executions. The second reason was behind the cleanup was the was the next criminal. The easiest people to be had were those who go relatively calmly to the razor. Seeing the blood from the previous victim would have sent terror through the next victim and it would have caused him to struggle needlessly. So you got to think, when these things come down and they cut a person's head off, their heart's already pounding. So the head cuts off, falls into the bucket, goes to the bucket or bites onto it, if you will. So you got to imagine that you've got this much blood pumping through a person's system that... It's going to spray. Yeah, they must have looked like like one of those those yard sprinklers. (laughs) Right? Well, it'd be arteries. Yeah, it's just spraying everywhere. And I had to have done that a few times before the heart stopped. It doesn't start instantaneously. Stop instantaneously. No. So much like vacuuming the floor in a porn center that uh, <laughs> just like it. Wow. Wow. I can't believe. I, I, every time I, I talk, I wasn't there long. The <laughs> dooms. Okay. <laughs> Ding. So we're going to go on to the next one, which I will read, which is from Atlas Obscura, Atlas Obscuria, which is Codex Gagas, the Devil's Bible, not to be confused with the Lady Gaga. The National <laughs> Library of Sweden, Stockholm, Sweden, which already said that it was from Sweden, so we're going to say Sweden one more time for the sense of redundancy. An illuminated manuscript compiling, comp- ah, compromising the life's work of lone monk, inexplicably decorated with a portrait of Satan himself himself i love the picture of satan it looks like a gremlin or whatever where the wild things roam yeah that's exactly that's exactly what it looks like where the devil roams the largest medieval manuscript in the world to believe that believed to be have been the work of a single monk in bohemia a modern in modern uh what so whatever i can read it i can read it <laughs> How do I pronounce that? Chichia? Chichia? Yeah. Chichia. That's good. That's good. I like that. It's, it's not, it's 620 pages and three three feet in size. That makes it remar- It's remarkable. It's the devil contained therein. Why can't I read? It must be the fucking. Oh, just wait. <laughs> Oh, God. Here we go. Literally <laughs> meaning giant book. The Codex Gaga was created in the 13th century and the origin, originally stored in the Benedict Benedictine Monastery at Pod... I got nothing. 
It's French. You can say Podlachi. Sure, Podlaz Podlachi. What in God's holy name are you blathering about? The, the manuscript contains not only the New and Old Testaments, but an assortment of other shorter texts addressing matters of extremely practicality for the time: exorcism, grammar, a calendar, and a medical works, to name a few. Everything within the book was handwritten by a single anonymous monk. The National Library in Sweden puts this massive undertaking into perspective. In quotations, if the scribble worked, I've never done that before either. Everything is in quotations. I'm saying this in quotations. Right. It must be because you vacuumed up jizz. If the scribe right. for six hours, what was the guy's name? Pedro? Pedro? Diddling? Whatever. Oh, what was his name? Pedro. If the scribe worked for six hours a day and wrote six days a week, this sounds like a bad math problem. Six days a week, this means that the manuscript could have taken about five years to complete. If the scribe was a monk, he may only have been able to work for about three hours a day. But if a train leaves New York going 55 miles an hour... Therefore, how many apples did Padre... <laughs> and this means that the manuscript could have taken ten years to write as the scribe. You know what? That, that little gif of Sandra Bullock with the little math problems popping up all over is what's going through my head right now. Yes. As the scribe may have also ruled the lines to guide the writing before he began to write. It probably took several hours to roll one leaf. This extends the period it took to complete the manuscript. The scribe also decorated the manuscript. So this also this all means that the manuscript probably took at least 20 years to finish and could have taken 30. These elements alone are enough to quali qualify the stunning manuscript as a wonder of the world. Yet the most bewitching element of the Codex Gagas is a single page of illumination that defines the explanation tucked away within the tome. Spanning nearly the entire face of a page is a full color rendering of the Dark Lord himself. This is not Lord Voldemort. Speculate oh, it's he who must not be named. Yes, he who must be not be named. Me and you are on the same wavelength here. Speculation oh, yeah. plausible and otherwise abounds as to how the unholiest feature possibly made its way into the most sacred text, but answers remain elusive. Previously, because of this tension, everyone loves the Codex Gagas, or the Devil's Bible, if you prefer. The manuscript originally traveled to Stockholm in the late 16th century, plundered it from the Holy Roman Emperor's castle by the Swedish army during the Thirty Years' War. The Swiss. Uh, this massive tome currently resides behind glass in a room on the second floor of the King's Library, also called the National Library of Sweden, in Hawaii, uh, in Hummel in Hummel Garden. Okay. Hummel Garden. It's called reading. Top to bottom, left to right. Group words together as a sentence. Hummel means hops, which is great for beer. Suggested oh. real, real royalty grew hops there for their own beer. Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> courtyard, a lovely park in the posh Stockholm neighborhood of Ostromalm. Oster, yeah, it's Oster. Yeah, that's a little umlaut. Oster. Ostermalm. The manuscript is not kept open and is kept in a fairly dark room because of the possible damage from light. There is also a movie describing the history of the Codex in Swedish with English subtitles playing in a loop. I also <laughs> prefer to be kept open and in a fairly dark room. Much like where you used to work. I'm going to keep Just like back. where I work. Yeah. Every time I talk to you, you've got some incredible story of your. <laughs> Why don't I have had some of the dumbest jobs ever? <laughs> <laughs> I love how you said that, like Beavis. <laughs> no, but uh, I like had jobs yeah, like, and stuff. Jobs stuff. All right, let's go to the Science Times, where Russia declares Venus a Russian planet. In Soviet Russia, Venus is a Russian planet. Go ahead, take That's it away. Right. In Russia, Venus watches you. In 1969, the United States sent astronauts on the moon and had them place the American flag as a sign that they were the first ones to land on the moon. America. Which we mentioned. 
A move was justified, especially during that time when the U.S. was in the middle of the space race with the USSR. However, it was not a sign to reclaim the entire moon. Well, wait, I mean, to claim the moon. But it was only a symbolic move. Recently, scientists have found evidence of biosignature in the atmosphere of Venus, which may indicate the presence of life in some form of the planet. Shortly after Russia's space chief claims that Venus is a Russian planet because it has been sending probes on the planet. We sent probe to planet hours now. It is moose and squirrels. Moose and squirrel. So since 1970, Russia has been landing probes on Venus, not Uranus, but Venus, and has been planning for a new mission to continue exploring the planet. The new mission is still in its planning stages and is likely to be conducted with NASA. However, Dmitry Rogozin, Roscomo's boss... <laughs> Roscomo, did I miss that? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Who the hell is I, this Roscomo's guy? I am Roscomo's boss. <laughs> <laughs> so Roscomo's boss says Roscrodo. <laughs> All right, I'm back. <laughs> Who the hell is Roscomo? It doesn't mention anything about Roscomo's before this. It's just... <laughs> Okay, it was Roscomo's, but I guess it's his boss, but go ahead. So Roscomo's boss said that they're also planning to separate, to a, planning a separate Venus mission that is likely to be conducted without any help from your country. Rogozin said that the exploration of Venus is now one of their agendas. They are currently preparing the Venera D project, the Venera D project, in cooperation with NASA but they're also considering their own mission. You are fighting so we, hard to read this in a Russian accent, aren't you? And I can just hear it. that Venus is a Russian planet, so we shouldn't lag behind, Rogozin said. The exploration of Venus... Oh, no, now, now you're talking Transylvania, but go ahead. Right. <laughs> <laughs> At some point you turn into Dracula. away as part of space missions by the Russians for 2021 to 2030, including in the United Government Program. The Russian state-owned news agency, TASS, reported that Lev Zeleny of the Russian Space Research Institute said that Russia is already planning at least three research vehicles sent to Venus. However, it is still unclear what type of research vehicles that will be. This has to be translated from Russian. I know. None of this article makes any damn sense. <laughs> any it's, sense. It's really written weird, but so it, it it's directly translated through Google Translate. <laughs> Because when you, but in past, the Russia probes that were sent to Venus did not last long and were dead only after hour and a half due to hostile environment of Venus. <laughs> Your Russian accent is so bad. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Blah. Since it has been years since those probes were sent to Venus and technology has significantly improved over time, it's possible that a lander could survive the hostile planet for longer while enough of it for it to return some valuable data. You almost have to read it in a Russian accent for it to make you sure. have to. It, it is interesting sense. to see a new space race specifically exploring Venus unfold over the years. That is correct. Verona 13 Benin. and the Russian space mission to Venus. One of the many probes that Russia has sent to Venus, it was the lander called Verena 13, which first transmitted color images from planet surface. Verena they 13 was designed to last for to about... Sicily. Yes, from Sicily. 
<laughs> Marina 13 was was last was was designed to last for about half hour in Venus, but some I'm actually reading this better in Russian than I can in English. It it's amazing. Is. I can't read shit in English, but I can read it this, in Russian. This accent is only somehow. transliterated. <laughs> transliterated. <laughs> That's a word because you say it is. Somehow it ended is. up transmitting important data from more than two hours after it landed on March 1st, 1982. Since then, no other landers have ventured into, into sending one to Venus. That is exactly how that is written. No other landers have ventured into sending one to Venus. That is a sentence. That's I'd like to send my lander to Venus. Although there are several orbiters made. However, documentation on Verena missions was sparse because it happened during Soviet Union era. Russians at that time preferred to keep all information and information secret until officials deemed it appropriate to release to news. This is why Americas were shocked when, in 1957, Russia sent Sputnik, the world's first official satellite, into space. It was then that Americans realized that the Moose and Squirrel were capable of sending satellites, which eventually led to space race. Perhaps it won't be long. I love how I just took the article over from you. I'm sorry. Perhaps it won't be uh, long now care. that new Venus mission will be launched once Vera D of Roscomos, which is boss, when NASA pushes through. There is video here. You may push video button to watch video. I'm not pushing that because it is American propaganda. We That's make right, it I'm Roscomo's boss. I can't be seen doing <laughs> So the next one is History's Mysteries. Ukraine's Mutant Spider. Should I read this one in Russian accent as well? Uh, all of them, yes. <laughs> no, I'm not reading all of these. <laughs> Historicmysteries.com. Uh, Internet reports of what may or may not have been an urban myth regarding Ukraine's mutant spider began circulating in late, late, oh God, I want to do it, a little over 20 years ago. I read better in Russian accent. I do not It's so lot. addictive. It's a such bad accent. Some people, I have a listener in Russia. They get mad and send me email now. Send email to projectarchivist.gmail.com. I get no email. No one loves me anymore. It's a sting. Okay. This victim, according to reports, the body of man was found slumped against the wall of an elevator within a certain tower block in Ukraine. The corpse was discovered with a pair of puncture marks on his neck. Go figure. Each of these bruises was yellow and blue in color. All of the victim's skin was pale. At the most, at the post-mortem examination, his body of death was determined to be a combination of severe blood loss and shock. As much as 1.5 liters of blood was said to be missing from the body, yet none was that found. That is a lot of blood. lot of blood. If he had drank vodka, he might not have such problem. Uh, as much as one point five Yet none was found around the lift he was discovered in. Lift is what we call elevator in Soviet Russia. No signs of forced entry were found either. Okay, I, 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 I want to keep doing this, but I can't. Other residents of the block either began or fueled rumors that an unknown vampire was loose within the tower block. The authorities weren't able to accept a fanciful tale as that. So we're going to go with mutant giant spider. Second victim. Because that makes sense. About a month after the first victim was found, another was discovered. This time, the victim was a 13-year-old girl who became trapped in an elevator between the fourth and fifth floors. The witness heard her frantic screaming and summoned the police once more. The local police forced uh, with them a small team of firefighters in case they were required to gain emergency access to the elevator, now called an elevator and not a lift. The girl was found in a identical manner to the previous victim before her. 
with a second excuse me with a second death attributed to the persons or thing unknown residents feared further attacks and refused to use the elevator again uh leonad kirinev former kgb propaganda minister hmm sounds suspicious. he's trustworthy yes absolutely was of the opinion that the latest victim had suffered a fatal overdose of heroin even though there was no yeah. syringe discovered well okay they could have shot up and then went into the elevator uh naturally the girl's parents denied the conclusion via million even went as far as to threaten legal actions against him. They are now dead. No, it doesn't say that. Setting a trap. We only shoot up in elevator. <laughs> lift. We do not call elevator lift. Oh, yes, yes. lifts. This is Russia. We call elevator lifts. Uh, setting a trap. God damn it. Now I'm doing it again. Of course, none of this had got anywhere any closer to discovering what exactly was happening. It was determined best and maybe only chance to do that was to set trap for a perp- uh, perp- uh, perp- uh, perpetrator. Per- I can't say a perpetrator. I have a speech impairment. I've heard some people saying uh, this is where they called Scooby-Doo and the gang. For three days, a detective and the sergeant rode the elevator constantly. Both were armed with pistols, torches, and radios. Torches being flashlights, I'm sure. They, I'm sure they were the actual torches. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the elevator rose steadily until it reached the point midway between the fifth and sixth floors and abruptly halted as, and its ascent and the interior lights failed. Both men reverted to their torches, which I'm sure were flashlights, but I want to believe that they were actually flaming torches. It sounds so much cooler. I, I, yes, I really want them to be Because I've got the well. visual in my head of like an H.P. Lovecraft book cover of guys like wearing trench coats holding guns with just, right, you know, bowler hats. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, uh, stood ready to act for, uh, for several minutes. Nothing seemed to be happening other than what they began to consider was a routine breakdown. And although, yeah, <laughs> routine breakdown. This happens all the time. Elevator car. Uh, that was until they both heard a peculiar clicking noise coming from above them. Trading their torches upwards. Again, I want to envision these guys holding sticks with flames on the end. And they caught a glimpse of something. It was a dark shape in the form of a square. It was easily one foot wide. The thing was headed. SpongeBob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm seeing SpongeBob with spider legs. Thank you. La, 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 la. A, a Russian SpongeBob with a hammer and sickle on its chest. This thing was headed directly towards the, the newly discovered dislocated roof panel. They then realized it was a furry head of a, the size of a man's fist peering down at the pair. The sergeant drew his weapon but was ordered not to fire. Fuck that. <laughs> I see a spider like that. I'm losing my shit. I'm going to shoot like mad. Uh, On the next episode of The Alienist. For some reason, the detective switched off his torch. Luke, you've turned off your targeting computer. Is everything okay? Allowing the creature to enter. What? No! It was a spider. A big spider. A huge spider. It actually says that. No. No, I am not a spider dude at all. I would... No. No. Yeah, that's a no. So it goes to third victim. This is... It leaves off right there at huge spider. It goes to third victim. I just smacked my microphone because I'm flipping out so far. Visualizing be crawling up your leg. A Russian SpongeBob spider with hammer and sickle. Now face ah, those three major areas. Uh, nyctophobia, a fear of the dark. Arachnophobia, spiders. And claustrophobia, confined spaces. And SpongeBobophobia, fear of SpongeBob. The sergeant panicked and dropped his torch, smashing it in the process. Before the detective could switch a, Idiot. his back on, the spider pounced. It landed flat Oh, flush on the face of the terrified sergeant. So it was an alien face hugger and began to bite him. Yes. 
As it drained the blood from his face, its body turned red in color. This is happening pretty damn quick. It's a giant tick. The detective finally managed to fire off a pair of gunshots while it's on his buddy's face. I can't lie. I would do that, too. I'm sorry, Gary. Yeah. If you had a Russian SpongeBob spider on your face. I would want you to shoot me yeah, in the face. Your face would be gone. The first one yeah. missed, but the second one. Oh, the second one took oh, one dear. three foot legs clean off. Oh, just a leg. It was found by the response team still twitching. The detective was slumped against the wall, quivering in terror. The sergeant became the third and final victim of the spider. The Chernobyl nuclear mutation. News of the attacks were said to have been suppressed, but word still managed to reach Tur- Turkish newspaper. Yeah, it says Turkish. I can't read Turkish. Go figure. Which broke the story. It went on to postulate that the mutant spider could have been result of the Chernobyl nuclear plant disaster from a few years previously. It also claimed that the flamethrowers were used on the spider's lair, reckoned to be the very top of the air shaft and that eggs were discovered there too i want to write a science fiction horror story based on it's all there yeah, it's yeah, all it's right there here the story is already here that's that's where it ends like the guy shoots his partner in the face as he's trying to kill the mutant spider and it just goes dark but it doesn't say anything about the spider it just says that they blew the twitching leg off of it but it doesn't say oh well, uh, he eventually went back to school and became a cpa yes sure We'll do that. It's probably yeah. better than vacuuming out jizz, jizz closets. But anyway, that's right. Okay, so. jizz closets. Oh, the great emu. <laughs> we were cheated. We wanted Godzilla. We got stupid spider. You're going to read from epicfails.com, and you're going to read about the emus, which are basically giant death turkeys that will. They are. The <laughs> they are raptors for sure. Yeah, they will eat your soul to the afterlife. So this is the great emu war. The great emu war of 1932. I don't know if this is true or not. I will preface that right now. Um, it looked interesting. It sounded cool. And emus are badasses. They're just like they're they're like the wraith version of ostriches. They're a lot more pissed off. I love the picture. That <laughs> yeah, they're they're angry. So uh, go ahead and take this one away. All right. If you want to read this into read this in an Aussie accent, which I don't think you can do, I should have called. I don't think I can. Up. I'm not good at Aussie. No, you're not even good at you're not even good at Russian. You keep going into to uh, the Vlad the Impaler. Take it away. <laughs> The Great Emo Law of 1932. <laughs> that one time the Australian army faced off against a pack of wild emus and lost. If we had a military division with the bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. So yeah, that happened. The Australian outback is a wild place fraught with hundreds of marsupials and various venomous creatures, most of which seem to be significantly engineered to kill humans. That's good. But only one particular species was formidable enough to take on the Australian army. Emus. Yes, and the ostrich-like flightless bird. I kid you not. Emus. No, it says it's it's got it's supposed to say fuck emus, but it's got all the little yeah, it's got all the little so special symbols. Australia, 1932. Following the First World War, many Australian veterans took up farming wheat on the west coast. Oh my god, I'd rather go back to the war. When the Great Depression struck, they were hit the hardest. To make matters worse, the Australian government wasn't holding up their end of the bargain and skimping on their promised subsidies, figures. But everyone was broke. But that's when the first attack came. A formidable wave of 20,000 emus migrating to the sea. What? Swarmed the farmlands and decimated their crops. They destroyed fences, ran... They ran amok and ate everything in sight. 
This reminds me of the South Park episode where the turkeys go on the rampage. Do you remember that episode? Yeah, I do remember that episode. There's all the turkeys. Oh, my God, look at the picture. There's a picture here of what I believe is the 4th Regiment 3rd Battalion of Emus. Holy shit, that's a lot of birds. There's a, that's a lot of emu. That's a lot of emu. Do you know how much less my back would hurt, would hurt if I had all that emu fat? My God. That's what they make blue emu oil from. I know how to stop this army. You put a row of rotisserie. Fresh, that's one. You put a freshly yeah. you put a row, just a big long row of freshly washed cars, because no oh, bird ha. resists not shooting on cars. On the car. So we so are these hardened World War One vets were hopelessly outnumbered, no match for the rampant stampeding emus. The government quickly reclassified the protected species as vermin, and even put a bounty on their feathered heads to no avail. They needed backup. The Minister of Agriculture was flabbergasted. It says flabbergasted. So the Minister of Defense stepped in to take care of the rampart rampant emu problem. Redubbed the Minister of Emu War. I, I Man, now I want that instead. I'm surprised you didn't have that job. <laughs> I, the night is young. Sir George Pierce of the Emu War ordered the Australian Army to take out those pesky birds. Major G.P.W. Meredith of the 7th Heavy Battery of Royal Australian Artillery led a pair of troops armed with Lewis machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition in the battle against their fearsome foe, the dreaded Emu. I'm putting 20 bucks on the Emu. Hmm, Emu versus Tank. Yeah, they got a picture that I mean, says, you thought the dingo ate your baby. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's true. On November 2nd, they spotted a group of 50 emus, but were out of range. With the help of local settlers, they attempted to herd the emus into an ambush, but the birds split off into two formations and outmaneuvered their flank. <laughs> this has got to be fake. I got to look wow. this up. Go ahead. I'm going I'm to look this up. Then on November 4th, the soldiers engaged the enemy, i.e. flightless birds, and managed to mow down 12 emus before their gun jammed, giving the birds an opportunity to flee. The major devised a plan to mount one of the guns to the back of a truck. Okay. But the cunning emu forces outran them on the rocky terrain. The machine gunner's dreams of point-blank fire in the, sur- in the surried masses of emus uh, soon dissipated. The emu command had evidently ordered guerrilla tactics, and its unwieldy army soon split up into innumerable small units that made use of the military equipment uneconomic. A crestfallen field force therefore withdrew from the combat area after about a month. Wow. Australia's Vietnam was emus. This is real. This this is yeah. I know there's people wow. in Australia listening right now going, You stupid English American you dumbass. Stupid. This is real. Yes, this is How real. Dare you this call us happened. stupid. The truth hurts. This is this is real. This really happened. Like wow. these emus went in and seriously kicked some ass. Go ahead, keep going. I, we need Mutant emus. No, they sound like they're bad enough on their own. We don't need mutant emus. We need we need emus and Russian spiders. Oh, we do. And then we could make those creatures from uh, God. What was that movie where they had those horrible uh, space marines and showgirls, right? uh, Showgirls, yes. Yes. Jismop. The emus continued their assault on the veteran farmlands like oversized locusts, wave after wave in greater numbers than before. So once again, the military launched a campaign in a desperate attempt to call their numbers. 
Although they had greater success the second time around, the operation barely managed to dent the onslaught of emus. These badass birds would not go down without a fight. One particularly hardy emu, named Gus, took five bullets without slowing down. Oh, God. <laughs> the reports claimed 986 kills with 9,860 rounds. Merk. At a rate of exactly 10 rounds per, per, per confirmed kill. Think about that for a second. Think about it. 10 bullets for every dead emu. For the record, that's very, not very effective. Farmers again called for help in 1943 and 1948. What? But this, t- this time the army conceded defeat. <laughs> Clever girl. You win this round, emus. emus. Wow. Dude, so wow. what the hell? Is it? Wow. I mean, you would think, you'd think with numbers that bit, have you seen Nemo up close? Have you been around one before? Have you ever been in? Uh, not close. I no. have. I've seen them. I have. Um, they, they are terrifying. Like they, they yeah. will take no shit. They I, look I mean, pissed all the time. They, they are. They look pissed all the time. I mean, they can be cool. Like domesticated ones can be pretty cool, but even still, you don't want to mess with these things. I mean, they got these thick ass claws. Like I said, they will eat your soul yeah. to the afterlife. They are, they are giant death turkeys. Um, but the fact that there's this many of the damn things, I mean, you would think that, okay, we have an emu problem. Let's corral these things up. I mean, how hard could it be to corral these things up? I don't know. I just, well, if you'd I like mean, to find out, I mean, check out the newest season of Travels with Father on Netflix. They actually go to an emu farm. I, that was funny when this came up. I'm like, I was just watching about emus. It's like, I mean, I get this vision of like, like, like World War Z, where armies of zombies are just coming at you in waves. But uh, only in 2020 could we be like, you know what? That that's that's the final episode of 2020. We're just attacked by a giant army of emus and Russian mutant spaders. Spiders, yeah, right. Spaders, yeah. Army of mutant spaders. spaders. James Spader <laughs> is going to uh, going to come out. And- I would think this would make a fantastic. You know, renewable food source because I've had ostrich before, and ostrich meat isn't ostrich bad. Ostrich is great. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty good. So me being the me, me being the food consuming fat ass that I am, I would be like, oh, <laughs> huh, low carb. You know, it's just a matter of developing. Right. Like you just have to have some kind of armor piercing bullets because these. I as- I assume the meat's out there because they raise them for their fat for emu yeah. oil. So like, exactly gotta have meat. Uh, okay, let's go to hoaxes.org, which is the Little Blue Man hoax. In early 1958, Michigan motorists began to report sightings of a little blue man, the glowing figure who looked like a spaceman from a science fiction movie, would appear out of nowhere on rural roads, rural is what's throwing me off, and then just suddenly disappear. Uh, I am Prado. <laughs> when startled motorists stopped to investigate, they could find no trace of him. As time progressed, the sightings grew more fantastic. Some said the man appeared to be 10 feet high. Others thought he was only 2 feet high. One motorist claimed he ran faster than any human. It was a smurf, you idiots. The police began to search uh, for what or who had caused these sightings. Their search ended with three young men, Jerry Spragu, Don Weiss, and Leroy Schultz. Leroy! Leroy! Schultz! Came Jerry Springer and confessed. The young men explained how all the reports of flying saucers in the news had given them an idea for a prank. They created a costume consisting of long underwear, gloves, combat boots, a sheet with holes cut for two eyes, and a football helmet to which they attached. I dated a girl in that same outfit. 
Yeah, you know what? Yeah. From everything that I've heard from you, I, I don't even. I, I <laughs> you probably met her at the porn store while vacuuming jizz. Uh, right. They then spray painted the costume glow in the dark blue, inspired by a song popular on the rail time called "Little Blue Man," which was the one I was telling you about before the show by Betty Johnson. Uh, Spragu wore the costume, noting that it was my underwear and it was the only one, the only one it would fit. Uh, the trio staked out rural roads at night. Spragu would hide in a ditch, and when motorists approached, he would leap out and run along the road to attract their attention, making a quick getaway by jumping into the trunk of the car driven by Weiss and Schultz. They did this on at least eight or ten nights over a period of weeks. The police let the pranksters off with a warning not to do it again. Links for reference. There are no links on here for reference. What are the little cans of oil in the background? Is that like product placement? Um, maybe. I don't know. This, they could have just taken the picture of the guy. I mean, the costume is pretty wild. I'll, I'll say that. It is pretty wild. For a homemade costume, I would wear this nowadays for a Halloween costume, besides the fact that he's got a glory hole mouth on the costume. Whoa! I mean, look at it. Tell me that's not what it is. I mean, uh, that's not that you would know anything about glory holes working in the professions that you have. So you got to knock. I guess that leaves us with, uh, we could cover the last story that you found if you want to. You know, we've still got, we've got time for it. So if you want to go ahead and do it. All right. That or uh, ninjas. If you want to do the ninjas, go right ahead. That ninjas might be a little bit better. It's not as long and, uh, right. you know, it's, it's humorous. So go ahead and do, do the ninjas. All right. So stealthy thieves broke into a Japanese ninja museum and stole a million yen. Uh, this is from CNN Travel. So, a ninja museum in central Japan had some stealthy visitors this week. Thieves who broke in and stole more than a million yen, $9,470 US, in the middle of the night. The Igarayu Ninja Museum, located in Iga City in uh, Mai Prefecture, is dedicated to the history and practice of ninja. Oh, I want to go there now. It noted... it. It notified police after an alarm went off in the early hours of Monday morning. At the time, there were no staff at the museum, which is a popular tourist site. When the police arrived, they found the museum entrance had been forced open and the safe containing the money was missing. The safe, which weighed around 150 kilograms, or 330 pounds if you're an American, American. held America, held admission fees from more than 1,000 visitors, according to the museum. It was a three-minute job, said the... <laughs> yeah, I know about the... was an official at the museum who requested anonymity for privacy reasons. <laughs> Me too. It was planned that they have scoped us out and singled us out. Part of the museum's appeal is that it's tucked inside a forest, where I would look for ninjas. But his also makes it a better target for thieves. And it's largely hidden from view once night falls. The museum's security cameras showed a car pulling up to the building on the night of the robbery, and 175 small little ninjas climbed out of it. What? No, okay. okay. No, no. <laughs> I was like, does it really say that? I see what you're doing. <laughs> yes, go ahead. I just immediately pictured this clown car. Right? And a man climbed out of the passenger seat. He walked toward the camera, tilted it down so it only filmed the ground for the rest of the night. The official added that the heist had occurred just as visitors were beginning to return to museum over the summer holidays. There's a second wave of the coronavirus now, but people were just getting more comfortable with the potential death. I mean, with the corona precautions we were taking. This is really terrible, he said. 
Known for their secrecy and high levels of skill, ninjas were masters of espionage, sabotage, assassination, guerrilla warfare, and great 80s films, dating back to at least the 14th century. They were fabled as hired assassins and have been steeped in mystery and lore for century. Long live Shai Kasuji. Now they're an established part of Japan's tourism and entertainment industries. Theater and pantomime groups often perform ninja acts and scenes in full costume. Iga, the city where the museum is located, is known as a center for ninja enthusiasts, according to the local legend. It was once home to the famous Iga clan of ninjas. Every year, Iga holds a massive ninja festival. Oh, I have to go to that. It attracts <laughs> thousands of attendees, to. right? With traditional performances, ninja costume stations, ninja training sessions, and more. Okay. What have I been doing? Plot twist. Life? You get there, everybody's there, but you don't see one ninja. That's I know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Where are the ninja? They're ninja. You don't I, see them. You know see ninja. <laughs> ninja see you. <laughs> That's right. The, I just want to go there and man a Cobra Kai booth. <laughs> In 2017, my university established the International Ninja Research Center in Iga. Iga? Iga. The first in the world dedicated to ninja studies. Okay, one of us right? needs to get these people on our show. Either you or yes. me needs to get the, an interview with this, with, this, with this institution on our show. Yes, I'm going to look into that. I want to hear you try to pronounce this next name, which is why I had you read this article. Oh, Genichi Mitsuhashi. I hate you. 45. (laughs) Became the first person ever to hold a master's degree in ninja studies. I have wasted my life. After completing my university's graduate course last year, he now teaches the art of ninja in his own dojo in Iga. I'm leaving. Iga is where ninja used to live, he told CNN in June. The climate of this area created the very nature of ninja. Oh. And then he threw something, and there was a puff of smoke and a flash, and he vanished. You know, <laughs> he threw an eggshell down, and it poof, and he was gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That was what it, and then and thus the octagon was born. I have a credit um, card that I'm holding in my hand right now that is just vibrating saying, you know, buy tickets and go to this thing. Um, I'm questioning if it would be worth the divorce to go to the Ninja Institute. Um, Yeah, but COVID. Fuck COVID. God. Damn you, 2020. Because I would totally go to the Ninja. I would totally go to this Ninja Festival. We need to get the only guy with a master's degree in Ninja Studies. We need to get that and the guy from the – we need to get this university on one of our shows. I think think it would actually fit better on your show, to be honest with you. Sure. But, um, yeah, this is something that needs to happen. It needs to be done. You need to do this. You need to make it a thing, and we need to talk to these people about what makes the Ninja University – like, is this like Hogwarts? Like – you, right. you know, you've got different classes for for different ninja stuff. Like, you know, this like what, what would the classes be at the Ninja Institute? I mean, I'm sure you're going to learn oh, martial there's, arts. There's there's like crest of the roof walking. Yes. And then there's those little thrasher weapons. You got to learn those, and then how to not hit yourself with a nunchuck. Yeah. And then how to put on that face thing so you don't look like a rube. God, we sound like such and, idiots. Is there like a Naruto we, class there for the finger gestures and all that shit? Oh, yeah. You got to learn all those and, and become a follower of Shinto. Yes. 
Yeah, we're, you know what? We're 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 just babbles. We're endlessly babbling here. All right, so yeah, we've hit the hour okay. mark. Let's call this show good. And where, sir, Woo-hoo. can people find Bizarro Aficionado? And what do you do there? Who was we your daddy? Under and most what do you rocks. Do? Well, you're my daddy. But what do you do? <laughs> you can find uh, Bizarro Aficionado pretty much anywhere, and you get a uh, fine podcast. So I know it's a, we're on we're everywhere. Even if you have a Sono speaker, if you have Alexa, you can find us. Just ask for Bizarro Aficionado and Apple Podbean. All those talking about the silly and the ridiculous. You, like myself, are going a much more serious route, minus this show. Trying, yeah, this at least a little bit. I don't want to take the bar too high, you know, but yeah, a little bit less stupid. <laughs> <laughs> There's still room for stupid, but slightly less stupid. Can't be all dick jokes all day. I mean, it can. No, no, I, I think Ninja Masters. There's always room for Ninja Masters. Ninja Dick Masters with with mutant mutant spiders riding emus. So now Venus. now you can envision a giant spider sitting on the back of an emu and on top of both of them is a ninja like surfing doing that thing that it does i don't know the bourbon is yeah. set in so we need to call this good all right i'm gonna wrap it up here um you can say whatever you want this is rojan peace out from detroit and this is gaz from uh bizarre aficionado saying adios peace folks i am padro <laughs> i'm rojan but what do you do i'm rojan i wrote i'm sancho <laughs> for god bye <laughs>